Welcome back to the Steven Talk Soccer Podcast. This is the home of the most controversial football takes and opinions in the world. If you guys are new to this podcast, this is the place, the home of where we look at every single Premier League match day and go through all of the bigger and more major stories of each game and each match week and each particular situation. If you're interested and you're loving the, the episode you've heard so far from the previous shows, make sure to download, to subscribe, and to follow to the Stephen Talk Soccer Podcast. It would be massively appreciated. There's so much to talk about all the time on this podcast. I'm going to have so many new guests coming on as well. We're going to go visual very soon as well. I'm also on TikTok for all you TikTok lovers. I know there are a lot of you because that app has taken over the world. There's maybe I think like a, a million uh, um, people who've like rated it or whatever on, on the app store, which I think is ridiculous. But anyways, let's get straight into the episode without any further introduction. Starting off with Aston Villa versus Everton. The game took place at the at Villa Park. A very, 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 very interesting game of football. Let's just say that. I mean, I had two goals in it for Villa and one goal for Everton. And I mean, Everton, who always play in the counterattack and were looking to simply just exist and to make sure they didn't lose, because that's often their motto, especially when they play away from home. And the fact that they've lost so many of their great players, this now means that they're having to settle for, you know, getting the occasional win and, and the consistent draw or, you know, positive result, whatever that may mean. A goal from Danny Ings in the 31st minute opened the scoring in the game. A goal that was very well taken and is very typical of Danny Ings. Let's be honest, he's a player that loves the unexpected and spectacular goal. He did it again with a left-footed finish that was very, very well taken. You can tell that he really is a proven goal scorer. And we've been speaking about Danny Ings for years now, obviously, you know, being a former Liverpool player, Burnley player, etc., etc., He's found his way at Villa now, and I mean, the way Villa attack is just, it's a bit disjointed sometimes, and they have to rely on a lot of individual brilliance as opposed to moments of sheer, like, tactical genius from Steven Gerrard and the way that he's gotten his team to go out and execute a plan that says, okay, play the ball to the wingbacks or fullbacks in this case, which they love doing in Matty Cash and Luca Dean, and get the balls, get the crosses into the area. This goal was well created, though. I have to give them some credit. He was a very well-taken goal from Danny Ings, and then in the second half, another goal came from Emiliano Buendia, which again was beautifully, beautifully, beautifully taken. This combination play between him and, and Ollie Watkins, two substitutions that came on for Villa. And it's kind of surprising that these guys don't start more often, in my opinion. But it was a very good combination play between uh, Emiliano Buendia and Ollie Watkins. A very cute one, too, you could see. And the th- one thing I have to give some credit to, because I really want to appreciate this and point this out when it comes to playing a one-two with someone or just a give-and-go, if you want to call it, for lack of you know, clarity with that expression. But to, like I mentioned in my, one of my old episodes, which, which, by the way, you guys should go listen to and check out because I spoke about this in thorough detail. But just to say that that way to pass is so essential when you're playing the game. And to to return the pass at the weight of which Ollie Watkins was able to back to Buendia was perfectly executed. Because normally that pass is over hit, it's under hit. The goalkeeper is able to catch it in time or the defender is able to snuff it out. The pass was perfectly weighted to Buendia's foot making it 2-0 to Villa. And then only a minute later, Luca Dean, the former Everton player himself, and actually he scored an own goal for Everton against Villa, I think last season. He's now doing the same thing for Villa this time against Everton and uh, made it uh, 2-1. I mean, Everton were able to get a kind of foot back into the game and they had chances to go on and get a draw of Anthony Gordon, who's been linked with the move to Chelsea, by the way, which I think is pretty interesting because, I mean, I never knew Chelsea were even looking at this guy, but he's a pretty good player. But, um, Anthony Gordon had his chance to go on and score 
wasn't able to take it. He could have been a bit more clinical with his finish in that last moment when he kind of came down the left channel and, and was running towards the keeper one-on-one. Match finished 2-1 to Aston Villa. Gerard best Lampard in that, you know, classic who's the greatest English midfielder of all time debate. Maybe, you know, manager-wise, we see that Gerard is the one that's on top and deserves to be, you know, in the place that he's in and then in the position he's in with Aston Villa and should be for, you know, the rest of the season. But, of course, both of these teams look pretty underwhelming, I'll be honest. Not two teams I'm very fond of watching consistently. I do like Gerard's style of football as I, you know, grew up watching Liverpool and Gerard's Liverpool, meaning Gerard is a player on Liverpool, as opposed to obviously he wasn't coaching the Liverpool team, he was just playing in it. But the point is, it's a good game overall, and it's a really good result for Aston Villa, who again were not that great in their first game of the season, but to come back and bounce back after a loss against Bournemouth is really good. Of course, the loss to uh, the injury to Diego Carlos is going to be a huge blow. Apparently, he might be out for the whole season, so they're already looking for replacements. And it's very sad to see because he's a new signing, and I was looking forward to seeing what he was able to do. Obviously, we heard so much about him at Sevilla and, you know, being a young Brazilian centre-back. And just typically when you're Brazilian, period, there's a lot of hype and a lot of attention put on you because of your the nationality you are. Like when you're coming from Brazil, we expect big things from you. It's going to be like he's going to be a very technical or very driven or very talented player. And he is all of those things. But these injuries often stifle players' career. And sometimes they never recover and sometimes they're able to come back and be better for it. So we'll see which one he does. But again, good game of football. Let's move swiftly on to the match between... Nottingham Forest and West Ham. Move on to Southampton versus Leeds. This man, this match finished 2-2. Again, really good game of football. Very, very tightly contested. A game that I actually thought Leeds would have gone on to win. And if you guys want to hear more of my predictions, you can check them out on my TikTok at STS Pod FC. All the links and stuff will be in my description. You'll see it all there, all the usernames. But I do do I do have a whole prediction series that I'm doing there where you know, I have like a point system. And if I get it right, I have this certain amount of points, whatever, whatever. The point is, is that I thought Leeds were going to win this game simply because I, I just don't trust Southampton anymore. I've lost that belief. I've lost that faith. I'm obviously not a Saints fan. So that's part of the reason why I don't have that much faith as, you know, a Southampton fan might. But just the way that Southampton have been playing for the last six, seven, eight months now has not really been inspiring to me. And I thought my form would continue in this game. But, you know, credit where credit is due because... The way that Southampton were able to get back into this game after going 2 nothing down, thanks to two very good goals from, might I add, from Rodrigo Moreno, who's been killing it in the opening stages of this season so far for Leeds, with two very good finishes, might I add, again. But uh, going 2 nothing down at home and, you know, having just lost the first game of your season 4-1 away at Spurs, just really a terrible combination of events, let's say. And for that to happen the way it did and to be able to come back and kind of, you know, revive themselves and give themselves a bit of life, especially as soon as Joe Arriba, who came on and made a huge difference. And especially the way he took that goal, which showed you just how technically gifted he is. I've watched him many times on YouTube videos. I don't know if you guys have seen him, but he's very popular in in England for playing with like street footballers and, you know, guys that play locally in, in the area. So you can see with his dribbling ability, it's clear that he has very, very capable in those tight areas, tight spaces. And the way that he's been able to beat Melier showed that. And then Cal Walker-Peters, and this goal was beautiful. Whoever gave that assist to Cal Walker-Peters, that was a lovely, 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 lovely pass. It was really, really, really good. Uh, and I just, I remember seeing and thinking to myself, like, I haven't seen quality on Southampton like this since James Red Prowse takes free kicks, you know, since he's been taking free kicks for them. And if he's not doing that, I don't see much quality beyond that. But I have to give them credit because this was a very, very, very good goal. And again, it just showed you that Southampton can have their moments. But overall... They're still a bit too far off the pace, in my opinion, to be, you know, really, really creating issues. It was Sekumara, the guy that they signed recently, 
very good pass to Walker Peters to make it 2-2. The match finished 2-2 in the end. It could have been, you know, a winner potentially for one of either sides, but it finished as a draw, which I think is a fair result for both teams. And they'll be happy with the point each and taking it away as a kind of a momentum booster for future fixtures. Now, on to the next game, which was between Leicester, oh, that's crazy, between Leicester and Arsenal. And uh, again, this is the game when I knew the Gunners were going to win because Arsenal versus Leicester at home, when Arsenal play Leicester at the Emirates, it's always a win. And actually, Arsenal typically beat, uh, they, t- he typically, they typically beat Leicester City all the time. It's just a formality at this point. And Leicester, who literally don't defend, they just generally, they do not defend. This is what we'd expect from them is to go to the Emirates Stadium and get cooked off the park. Gabriel Jesus in this game, might I add, had an absolute blinder. He was so, 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 so good. I'm so, I mean, I'm, I'm actually mad I don't have him in my FPL team. I should have known that. But he was absolutely exceptional in this game. Truly, one of the best performances I've seen from an Arsenal player individually in a, since a long time. This kind of reminded me of like Alexis Sanchez, you know, back in the days with Arsene Wenger. If you know, you know. He was that good. He was really, really impressive. And it just, it reminded me of, of a time where Arsenal had individuals that could win the matches single-handedly. Yes, you might say Bukayo Saka or whatever, but for me personally, I'm not the biggest Saka fan, I'll be honest. And I think that Jesus gives them an element that they haven't had in a long time. That youthfulness, that exuberance, that passion, that tenacity, that natural flair, that Brazilian you know, skillfulness. All of those things come, compiled together in one player. And it just lets him, you know, be that guy. And the way he set up literally every goal or scored every goal in this game showed you just how instrumental he was in Arsenal winning. The rest of the game, obviously, was quite interesting because they still had moments from Leicester where they kind of came back into the game through James, James Madison, who I've said, by the way, is going to have a great season. I think he's such a top, 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 top fast player. Uh, poor goalkeeping you can add from Ramsdale, but really good performance from the Gunners. They performed really well and were well-deserving of their of their victory. I think that they completely played Leicester off the park. Like Leicester looked devoid of ideas, especially in transition. I thought Arsenal were really good at picking Leicester off as soon as they got the ball and were able to kind of go forward in a vertical and immediate fashion, which, which led them to scoring almost right away or creating a chance right away, rather. And uh, just really good points from, from Arsenal. Uh, onto Brighton versus Newcastle. The game ended in a draw. And let's be honest, this game is, this fixture always ends in a draw. It's one of those matches where you can kind of look away from it and just predict the scoreline even before anything even happens. And uh, because of that, uh, it's become obvious that this, this picture is not one that you don't have to watch. Obviously, if you're a Brighton fan, you want to watch it. If you're a Newcastle fan, you're going to want to watch it. But at least the understanding that the game doesn't have those moments that should that's really going to excite you. I mean, that's a bit of a lie because Brighton had many chances in this game to go on and win. And, you know, we call them XGFC for a reason, which means expected goals, which is the metric that's, that uh, judges the amount of opportunities a team has and the places that the, the places that the team has had these opportunities and whether or not they should have been goals or not. And I think that Brighton, of course, you know, had a super, super high XG in this game, which is so common to them because literally every time Brighton play and they don't win is because they haven't been able to be clinical enough to score goals. And it happened again in this match and it happens over and over and over again. Brighton had an expected goals rate of 1.50 in this game. That's basically nearly two goals to Newcastle's 0.22. So it shows you who really should have won. And that's true because, you know, Newcastle were defending with their lives on it. Nick Pope became Nick Pope again, that tweet that we're seeing everywhere on social media. Nick Pope was Nick Pope, had an excellent game. He was truly, truly something spectacular. And uh, Brighton would be disappointed to not pick up all three points. But to start off the season with, you know, four points from a possible six is very impressive for a team like Brighton, who've now lost their two best players, in my opinion, Mark Kugarea and in Yves Basuma as well. So really good performance from Brighton. 
Newcastle will, will be a bit disappointed in, in not being able to put out their best foot because they're looking to be a team that really challenges and competes for the top six this season. And I think they can give in the frailties and fragilities to the teams in that area at the moment. And we'll get onto them in a second. You guys know who I'm talking about. But um, yeah, that, this is just my opinion on that game overall. But when we come back, we'll be looking at Manchester City versus Bournemouth, Wolves versus this, I mean, the Sleeper Club, should I say, versus Fulham, Brentford versus Manchester United, and Nottingham Forest versus West Ham. And obviously, the London Derby. We'll get to that at the end of the episode. When we come back. And now on to Manchester City versus Bournemouth. And I mean, this game is, a, again, another formality. If you watched this game, you probably were extremely bored because you expected a scoreline anything from 3 nothing to 6 nothing, and that's exactly what you got. It was a 4 nothing win for Manchester City at home against a Bournemouth team that looked lackluster, looked, looked devoid of ideas, clearly didn't you know feel up to the task of trying to compete with Manchester City. And they did for 15 minutes. Okay, fair enough, 16, 17 minutes. But the opening goal was scored from Ilkay Gundogan, again, a player who I've said for so many years now. And you guys want to go hear that episode, you can, because it is out there. But for so many years now, where Gundogan is a player that's so massively underrated and his qualities and, and what he offers to a team, nobody really talks about. And we saw it in this game, again, his finishing ability is very good. He's improved his goal-scoring ability. We've seen that in the, that, you know, in the more recent seasons. His distribution, obviously, has always been good. His leadership is now, I think, he's a captain of City often all times, you know, now that we've gotten rid of Fernandinho, et cetera, et cetera. He had a very good game. And then, of course, the goal of the game, in my opinion, which was scored in the 31st minute by none other than Kevin De Bruyne. What a goal, my friends. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what we call class personified, class on grass. This is what we call the definition of just a, an absolute baller. De Bruyne, that little drop of the shoulder, the way he just shifted the defender to the left and kind of sent him for a little stanky leg. If you know the dance movie, you know what I'm talking about. And he took a great finish and made it one not 2 nothing to Manchester City. Obviously, by the time the game is over, Bournemouth know the game's over. City know the game's over. So Phil Foden said, why not? I'll add another goal. Six minutes later, Phil Foden stepped up to the plate, gets a bit of a cheeky finish. 3 nothing Manchester City. And then we go into the second half, and it could have been much more than that. I'll be honest. City could have destroyed this team by any margin they really wanted to. Four, five, six, seven. It didn't matter. Then Jefferson Lerma taps in a, uh, a very well-drilled cross from Jorkinsel off the left, which made it 4 nothing to Manchester City and put the dagger and the, the final nail in the coffin against Bournemouth. And then we move on to... The next game, which was between Wolves and Fulham, we're going to speak about this very briefly because this game had two moments of, you know, real, you know, quality and, and a goal scoring opportunity, which really should have been taken by Wolves and, you know, one player in particular in Pedro Neto and, and Leander Dendonker as well. But I just, again, whenever you watch Wolves, the games always end in a nil-nil scoreline, in a one nothing scoreline, in a 1-1 scoreline, or in a 2-1 scoreline, if that, especially at the Molyneux. The Molyneux, as I will now be calling it from for the rest of the season, is the home of draws and low results, uh, low scoring results. It is never ever a fortress of you know like glory and 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 uh, glitz and glamour. Example: Ellen Road, Leeds Stadium. Goals are always being scored at Leeds. Always, it's just the fact Leeds always have those moments where those games just go crazy. At the Molyneux, where Wolves played against Fulham, it's always a. It's just a, you just, honestly, wow, <laughs> that was a crazy start, I'm falling asleep. No, but see, that's what it felt like. Like, I'm watching the game, and I'm just like, like, 
what is standing out to me here? Obviously, you have those moments that are players that are standing out and they have certain traits and abilities that Ruben Neves is of this world. Like I said, the Pedro Neto is of this world. Even when Gonzalo Gedge came on, he's a good player. I really like him. Player from uh, Valencia coming to, to basically Portugal FC. And from a Fulham perspective, it wasn't a bad game. And obviously, the missed penalties, the biggest high, the highlight or low light from the match from a Fulham perspective in the fact that Mitrovic, who did score a penalty against Liverpool in the first match week, missed one in this game. And I mean, I feel like Fulham have a history of missing penalties. From what I've understood, they often struggle at scoring from the spot. So this is no surprise. If I had that gone in, it would have ended one nothing in uh, in Fulham's favor, which wouldn't have been, you know, uh, completely unjustified. Let's be honest. But it is what it is. I mean, of course, you had the typical Brunelag complaint like he did against Leeds. He had it again against Fulham. Just classic every game that you know Wolves will win. He cries, and uh, no, no result. On to the next match now which was between, oh, this is where things get tasty. Oh, I'm about to dissect this like there's no tomorrow. Brentford 4, yes, I'm going to say that one more time. Brentford 4, the Bs 4, Manchester United slash divided nil. Now, I predicted that this game would finish one nothing to Brentford because I knew for a fact United wouldn't win this game. I could just tell. And there is so much to unpack about this United team. I've spoken to many United, a lot of friends of mine that I know that are United fans. We've had various, countless conversations discussing what the problems are and what the problem is at uh, at Manchester United and why Ten Hag has been struggling. As we've been calling him recently, Eric 10 days or Eric 10 games. Basically saying that he only has 10 games or 10 days left before he gets the sack. Or we call him Eric 10 Boer which is like Frank de Boer, who only had like one week at Crystal Palace when he had the job there before getting fired. Um, where do I start with this game? Honestly, I really don't know where to begin. Let's start off with David De Gea. I think that's a great point. Um, I watched Dean Henderson play for Nottingham Forest yesterday against West Ham, and I was thoroughly impressed. Like, I think Dean Henderson is a very, very good goalkeeper, and I've been saying this since his time at Sheffield United. I can always, always see that, yeah, this keeper knows what he's doing. And he did it again against against West Ham. And to compare him to David De Gea, who obviously was, was playing against Brentford for Man United, it just showed me the, the difference in class and the different skills that you need to be a very top-class goalkeeper in, in, the, in today's modern game. Uh, overall, I have to say, I was really, really disappointed with Manchester United's performance, which is obvious to say, but not even disappointed for the reasons that you're expecting me to be disappointed for. I just thought United, as they've done for some time, they look... Like a team that has obviously no unity. We call them divided for a reason. But they don't have that interest. Like they don't want to play football. For them, it's just about making money. It's, they seem like a team that's become extremely, like to the point where it's it's like heightened to the point where like your senses are tingling when you think about it. It's like, it's so concentrated on, on monetization and commercialization as opposed to footballing success and ability. And obviously, this stems straight from the, the ownership and how the club wants to be run. I was explaining this to my friend recently. And I was saying to him that the, the reason why United were able to be successful when the Glazers came in with Sir Alex Ferguson is because Sir Alex Ferguson represented the old era of United. He represented the success that United inherently had for the last 15, 20, whatever many years. And I was saying that because he was still there at that time, despite the ownership, he was, the, he was able to implement and to continue to keep that... Uh, he was able to keep all well, the scoring again. I'm watching Napoli versus... Uh, Verona, they're destroying him. I think it's like 6-2 now. That's crazy. But yeah, he was able to keep that 
stability and that mindset and that that inner belief and hunger that you get as a club that wins all the time. And as soon as he left, all the managers that they brought in, even the likes of Mourinho and Van Hal, they couldn't rescue and return that feeling of glory and brilliance that they now are able to have. They, they weren't able to to uh, to reignite that spark or that flame. And they brought in players that have that mentality, like a Cristiano Ronaldo, who you, who you would expect would be that leader, would be that talisman, would be that that guy that's going to take United on his back and just lead them to you know nothing but glory. But in this game, again, as we saw against Brighton, no cohesion, no chemistry, no game plan, no structure, no, no strong mentality, all gone. And I say this all the time. And I don't even mean to point out this one player because I feel like I do that too much and I've slated him so many times on this podcast. But it has to be said, Harry Maguire is not a top six center back. I'm sorry. He's barely even a top 12 or 10 centre-back, in my opinion. So to have him be your main centre-back of your club and making the mistakes that I've seen him do countless times now, like many, many times, not just in this game, many times in, in his playing time at Man United, there is literally no way, there is no way you can tell me that this guy being your leader, being your, your John Terry of the club, which we know he's not, if that's going to be your backbone that allows you guys to go on and fight and go to war with each other. Not against each other, but against opposition. So I'm watching United, and I see him make a mistake. I see De Gea, who literally just let the ball through his hands like a, you know, like a three-year-old, a two-year-old trying to catch the ball for the first time. It was just, it was truly a howler. And again, I don't want me. I mean, I'm a Chelsea fan. I can't really talk. I watched Brentford beat us as well and destroy us with good reason. Brentford are a decent team, and they have a manager and a and a and a, and a unit that's so well drilled and so like a well-oiled machine that never stops working. It never stops running it's always consistently moving it's like a horse that just has that you know it's been put on steroids and crack and coke and it just keeps going and going and going and going and going and we saw that in this game i mean opening 10 minutes josh silva scores a wonderful goal to open the scoring i mean it was a bit lucky with the finish uh in terms of De Gea letting it in but only eight minutes later matthias jensen this goal was really nice i love the little skill that he did to beat erickson who lost the ball in his own area which by the way we'll touch on that in a second but the fact that he lost the ball there and then Jensen was able to take it off of him and then beat Ericsson with that little drop of the shoulder, little skill move, this little like rollover, like a ball roll or you know, scroll, whatever you want to call it, and then finish it. Lovely finish. 12 minutes later, Ben Mee at the back post, climbing over the shortest man in world football history, Lisandro Martinez, the player from Ajax, who obviously has not been able to kind of get his feet properly underneath the table at United so far. He's definitely struggled as of recent. Uh, hopefully that changes for his sake. He's actually a very good player. But clearly, United make all their players worse. It's what I've been saying for time now. But um, just to add that, Eric Ten Hag needs to take a book out of uh, someone like Graham Potter's notebook or his uh, his notes. Because Graham Potter, as I mentioned in my old episode, I think my, my last episode that I made, talking about him being a floor raiser. Actually, that episode's coming out very soon. It's coming out soon. You guys will hear it. But um, just to say that he's not a manager that's been able to make players that are terrible really, really good as of yet. And United players, some of them can't be rescued, no matter who the coach is, no matter how great they are at, at you know at uh, giving instruction and, and changing a player's style of play and tactics. It doesn't matter. They're still going to remain as terrible as, as they've always been. But just watching this game and seeing the third goal go in, go in for Brentford, three goals in 30 minutes. That's a goal every 10 minutes as Manchester United. That, that is ridiculous. It's just, it was truly something to behold. I was celebrating like I was a, like I was a Brentford fan. That's how, that's how funny it was to me initially. And then I realized, I said, like, you, the big Man United that we all, we've all known love is, it's not love as, as in me, myself, but, you know, the footballing world. 
they're losing their touch. It's just what is. And in, until they change and re- re- restructure the entire club, arguably, they will never be that team that we expected them to be. Them losing 4 nothing at Brentford might start being like something that we could be considered normal now. Like, I had them finishing in the top six. But let's be honest, performances like this and the one they had against Brighton would indicate that they were going to finish maybe just on, just outside the top seven, top eight, potentially in the top ten. You know, so 3 nothing from a Ben Mee header. Very well taken, by the way, because Brentford are excellent from set pieces. And then 4 nothing. only five minutes later. Again, this goal was beautiful. Great pass over the top to find, I believe it was Ivan Tony, who, again, had the game of his life. He was so good. Ivan Tony is a player that nobody ever wants to really put some respect on. And games like this against big clubs like United will help him get that recognition he truly, truly, truly deserves. He's really, really a special player, Ivan Tony. Full of quality, full of flair. You know, he can score goals. He's great at link-up play. His hold-up play is excellent. Like, he finds perfect pockets of space. His timing of his runs is really good. Like it, Again, his distribution is massively improved. He's much more of a team player, not just a goal scorer. The way he was able to find Embremo in this situation is a perfect example of this with the pass that he found. This left foot, by the way, as well. Perfectly weighted, which we always talk about in this podcast, is super important. Finds its way to Embremo, who normally loves hitting the post and missing the net finally find his way to score the goal and put it in the back of the net to make it 4 nothing. yes, 4 nothing at halftime. Now, let's touch on back, on back on Manchester United because there's much to talk about here. So for Manchester United, they played a player, Christian Eriksen, who actually is a former Brentford player, and he might be regretting leaving Brentford now, let's be honest, and I wouldn't blame him because Brentford are playing much more detractive and just detractive, attractive and uh, just more of a alluring style of football. But to play Christian Eriksen as a false nine against Brighton and then immediately switch his position to a, a number six doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. You would never take Bobby Firmino, who plays as a, classically plays as a false nine for Liverpool, and then tell him to switch places with Fabinho, who let's say he's injured or just wasn't playing that game, and ask Firmino to become the six. It doesn't make any sense. It, it doesn't add up. So when I saw that, I said to myself, United are doomed. Because they're targeting players that aren't even necessary, first of all. And in terms of player roles and where you're supposed to play them, they're also picking those wrong moments. And then I saw that, I said, yeah, something needs to change soon, or this is going to keep happening over and over again. Because they need to have some sort of some sort of a system and a consistent lineup. And yes, they do have that, but the players that they're picking in their lineup, example, Marcus Rashford, who, by the way, I did a whole spiel on that again off, off, the, off, the, off the recording yesterday, talking about this. So again, the same friend of mine who's a big United fan. Uh, and... And even other fans of, of, of other clubs as well. But he's talking to him specifically about this. And I was saying that what needs to happen, and the reason why United have struggled so much, or Rashford in particular, because I think he personifies United's regression, is that they've lost... Like When you're in a team that's so like in disarray and doesn't have that harmony, and you have a captain that you don't really respect, that's hard for you to really look up to and see as, as your, you know, your leader, and it's going to give you that instruction and that advice to become a better player, you're only going to get worse in your game. It's only natural. When the environment around you is successful, like a Manchester City, you play more, you play better. Even if you're not a great player, you naturally improve. Marcus Rashford needed that specific guidance that he's probably never going to get now in his career to really take his game to the next level. Had he left to go to the PSG that was linked with him, this 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 transformation, and also in the past, I think he would have hit off, hit the floor running. His PSG, PSG have already groundwork of a of a team. Obviously, they win uh, Uber Eats every year for fun, they get free Uber Eats service, but they have a groundwork of a team that's that's always going to be you know at the pinnacle of their game united have lost that at the moment which means that players that play there aren't going to be able to reach that level until they have that you know that sense of 
winning mentality, as I keep harping on that football heritage, have just definitely you know been a, been gone from them for some time. That's why United lost terrible result for them. Excellent result from Thomas Frank and company. United play against Liverpool next, which I'm telling you is going to be a very interesting game. Uh, they play at Anfield as well, which makes it even more you know more interesting to me because. I'm expecting very, very uh, tricky times ahead for them, I'll be honest. But it is what it is. We'll see what United can do. We'll see if Ronaldo leaves. I mean, he was absolutely livid watching what happened when he saw what he saw on the pitch against Brentford. Like, you could tell that he was not having any of it. But it was obviously a historical moment. I mean, Brentford have now beaten United, you know, by scoreline that nobody would have ever predicted. And it was a very, very crazy match of football. That's my little rant on the United-Brentford game. Now, on to Nottingham Forest versus West Ham. Now, this game... Oh, boys, ladies and gentlemen, this game was was super, super interesting. I had a lot of controversial moments, a goal that was disallowed, which I thought, to be honest, made sense. I don't know what Antonio was thinking, trying to rugby tackle, trying to set a screen like he's, you know, he's uh, he's Rudy Gobert for the uh, for the Timberwolves. But <laughs> that's what it looked like. Uh, really good goal or just, you know, overall play to let, that led to the goal that led to the goal for uh, Tyro Amoni to score his first goal for Nottingham Forest. An overall very entertaining game of football. Nottingham Forest have that it factor. They have that bite. They have that excitement. They have that energy. They have that roar that we're looking for when, when, when we watch Premier League football. Right? They have that that uh, that um, that spark that you don't always get from certain teams. <clears throat> Everton, <clears throat> Wolves. You know what I mean. And I'm watching Nottingham Forest West Ham, and this is one of the best games I saw this weekend. It was really, really, really interesting. A very, very back and forth game, and had all these moments and opportunities for both teams. Both teams are looking to go full throttle. weren't looking to set up for. A, a very cheeky and boring draw. And I feel like West Ham got hard done by. They probably should have won this game, given how many chances they had and the quality of chances that they had when they had them. Two crossbars, one from, you know, Pablo Fernandes, who, again, was having a game on the half, and one from, uh, I believe, it was... I forget who hit the second one. I don't remember now. But someone else hit the crossbar as well. And it was, again, I think it could have been Saeed Ben-Rama. He's having the game and a half as well. He was really, really good. Um... I don't know if you guys saw that one skill that he did when he received the ball on the left side and he was able to kind of skip it over skip it over the defender's slide tackle and keep running. And it led to the chance that created the penalty, which happened in the game four in West Ham. West Ham. And then Declan Rice, who, I mean, he had a shocker. I mean, we talk about Declan Rice and say he's one of the best midfielders in the Premier League, one of the best midfielders in the world. And, of course, you can have a bad game. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying bad game means he's a bad player. But in this game in particular, he really was not the Declan Rice that people have been, you know, wilding out about for so long now. And that penalty showed me everything I need to see. His mind was not in it. I don't know what happened, but he looked really, really out of it when he took that shot. Just dragged the penalty completely. Again, against a very competent and confident keeper in Dean Henderson, who had bigged up. And he was making some ridiculous saves. Like, he was, again, just like Nick Pope for, for Newcastle, very, very athletic goalkeeper that has the spring of like a sprung chicken that can just fly over the high jump like there's no tomorrow. And that's exactly what he showed. Great penalty save from Dean Henderson. And a really good performance from Nottingham Forest, especially just kind of you know containing and, and maintaining the the level of intensity and aggression that they wanted throughout the ninety minutes. I think that's what allowed them to go on and score the goal they did just before halftime. And the way that they were able to construct it, like I said, like I said it before, was really well done. Lingard involved and Toffolo involved, involved the new signings, obviously all combining Toffolo and now Awani getting his first goal. And I think it's going to be a sign for great things to come. I think Nottingham Forest have the roots of a team that can really, really do something in the Premier League. I am a huge fan of Steve Cooper. If you don't know that, I really, really like him. I enjoyed watching his his Swansea ta- his Swansea team, and I'm really enjoying watching his Nottingham Forest team as well. But uh, good game. Ben Rama had a chance. Like I said, had a goal disallowed. 
uh, had a penalty miss. West Ham, they really should have won this game in theory. All the other chances they had, the fact that they didn't win is a bit of a disgrace. And they would tell you that themselves, but it is what it is. Football, you can't win every match, obviously, and that's what happened. So there you are. But um, we'll move on now to when we come back to the most controversial game, the one you guys have been waiting for of the entire match week. And, of course, it's Liverpool versus Crystal Palace, which is happening in a little bit. I'm going to go for a Liverpool win there, by the way. But when we come back, we'll be looking at Chelsea versus Tottenham in the London Derby at Stamford Bridge. And now on to the final or penultimate game, because I will be doing my review of Liverpool versus Palace. You guys can check that out on my uh, on my TikTok. I'll be making that as well. It's a kind of a post-match. If you're interested in seeing what I have to say about that game, make sure you go follow me there as well. But on to the Chelsea versus Spurs game. And I mean, it was Chelsea versus Anthony Taylor, basically. And I don't even like talking about referees, because I feel like it's overplayed when we were playing refs, because let's be honest, Chelsea should have won this game with or, with or without the corruption that we saw. Uh, it was clear that the corruption was was obvious. I mean, they, they one team were was heavily favored in decisions. How Spurs left the game without a yellow card, I think, is absurd. But I mean, that's football for you nowadays. Uh, Tuchel and obviously Conte both got fined for their antics on the sideline, which I'm certain a lot of you guys listening and 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 people who watched the game absolutely enjoyed seeing you know the two managers kick off and get angry at each other. But um, it was a really good game of football. Finished two two. I had known the game would be a draw. I predicted it finished one one. I thought Chelsea should have won by by. A comfortable margin. They were definitely the better team. Again, this is no bias involved. From an objective perspective, Chelsea were easily the better side. I thought Spurs got really lucky with getting that point. And obviously, you know, while the shit antics we saw, that's just inevitable at this point in the way football is going. Or at least it goes whenever Anthony Taylor referees a game for Chelsea. But a uh, good goal from uh, from Koulibaly. And I mean, I can't, I'm not really going to be too excited or too happy about this result. I think Chelsea should have won the game. And the fact that they ended up being a draw as opposed to a win has made me feel like the game is a loss, in my opinion, as a Chelsea fan. So I'm not really too excited about this. I don't really care. I'm happy it's over because I hate playing Spurs, even though we often beat them. But um, Chelsea 2, Tottenham 2, a really good ball from Mark Cucurella on the corner to find Kalidou Koulibaly, who I literally predicted would score before the corner kick was taken. I was literally telling my stepdad, I said, he's going to score this. And a second later, boom, a goal. The goal happened. And I mean, well, who am I to predict? Like I'm not like some sort of fortune teller, but I just knew. He's that kind of player for the ball. He's really, really deadly in, in aerial situations. And he proved it again in this moment for Chelsea here, opening the scoring, scoring the first goal at Stamford Bridge in a new season. I have a bit of a theory. I think there's a Todd Bowley curse because whenever Todd Bowley comes to watch Chelsea games, we always either lose or draw. And I, I feel like he needs to stop going to the stadium because when he's not there, I feel like we're going to win. But anyways, we open the scoring with that goal. Really good goal from Chelsea. They were very dominant. I'd say after the opening five, six, seven minutes, the Spurs had a bit of life in them in the beginning, and we completely took control of the game for the next 75, 80 minutes. And then Chelsea took over the match and uh, scored a second goal through Reese James, and it canceled out the equalizer that was scored by Pierre-Emile Hoybier, who, in my opinion, 
you know, all those guys were having absolute stinkers of tactical foul after tactical foul after tactical foul. But I mean, like I said, ain't nobody going to call any fouls or any bookings on, on Spurs players. Spurs have their own Premier League bias. I do I do genuinely believe that. But anyways, goal score from Hoybier, making it 1-1. I mean, Mendy should have done a lot better in that. That strike was looking like a P-roller, looking like Iron Robin versus Dortmund. You know, looking like a he hit it with his purse, as the expression goes. And it went in the back of the net to make it 1-1. And then only a couple minutes later, or not too far later, Reese James makes it 2-1 to Chelsea. Really good goal. Very good good build-up. Good, good good chance creation. Good setup by Raheem Sterling. Again, way to pass Merchant. And I'm, I'm going to continue to be on the Twitter. Reese James, he was having the game of his life, making it 2-1 to Chelsea. And then after Cucurella had stepped on uh, Christian Romero early in the game, Romero wanted revenge and grabbed Cucurella's hair on the, in the build-up to a corner kick that Spurs had late in the match. And, of course, 96 minutes, which, again, is ridiculous. But, of course, it's classic London Derby nonsense. Cucurella gets dragged to the ground. The referees deem it not violent conduct, which I never knew that ripping someone's hair out of their head meant that you could get away with it and not be you know, sent off or at least given a foul against the four. Because Anthony Taylor literally saw it happen and just let it happen in front of his eyes. But, okay. And then uh, it finished 2-2. A Tyree Kane was able to nod it in and you know act like he won the Premier League, which was pretty funny. But it is what it is. And, uh, yeah, so that's another game finished. As you can hear, I'm very, very... Um, dejected because i just feel like the game is really is really it is really ruined and it's annoying when referees are the main focal point of a match and not just the game ending for what for what happened in it if that makes any sense and now on to the goal of the week and the fraud of the week and now for me my goal of the week has to be gabriel jesus's goal against leicester city that was a peach what a perler man what a beautiful beautiful goal my jaw literally dropped like I literally could not believe it. The, the amount of quality and technique on that finish was sublime. It was really supreme goal-scoring ability from a player that we expect so much from, and he's continued to live up to this hype since moving to the Gunners. So very good finish from him. And if you haven't seen that goal, I would highly... It's one of the best goals I think I've seen in a while. Like From that angle and from, with that type of skill, you don't see that very often. It was a very special goal to open the scoring for Arsenal against Leicester City. And I mean, just like last week, I, I can't. Make, I cannot make my frauds of the week Manchester United. I can't. Like they would be and should be because of how much they got destroyed by Brentford. But uh, my fraud of the week this week, I don't even know who's going to be, man. I think it has to be Anthony Taylor, surely, man. Like, this guy comes onto the pitch and just wants to ruin it. Like I, I don't get it. Like I don't understand how a referee can continue to referee a certain team's games, knowing that. You know, all fans and players and everything involved with Chelsea, we all know that he has his own bias and agenda. It's been seen countless times. Rival fans know that we have that there's a, there's a beef between Taylor and Chelsea. Lord knows why, but it exists, and that's why he's the fraud of the week. He literally ruined the game. It should have been three points comfortably, and it ended up being a draw because that's what Anthony Taylor does. And now Tuchel, who spoke out about this, is going to get fined. and probably might see some lengthy suspension or whatever. Who cares, man? That the, uh, the as my as my uh, brother often mentions. Nari often mentions on this podcast about the corruption in the politics of the game. This is the perfect example of what he's talking about and how, you know, the certain kind of hidden mentions behind uh, football that we don't see that happen a lot. This is a perfect example of it. And I felt like it was just sad to see because, like, why can't the game ever just be pure for what it is? And, I mean, Anthony Taylor, who has his own biases and agendas, was able to run it like there's no tomorrow. Like running like a, you know, a presidential campaign, he was able to run it, you know, with ease. But um, that's all I got to say on that. He's my fraud of the week. This has been the Stephen Talk Soccer Podcast. I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. If you had, please make sure to download, to subscribe, to follow, to give me a rating, to get the show a rating, five-star rating, that is. That would be hugely appreciated. I really, really love 
all the support and, and, and everything. And I have a huge milestone to announce. And I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I think I'm going to do like a live on something on Instagram or something like that. But I have officially reached a thousand downloads. Thank you guys so, 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 so much. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a wonderful journey so far. And I'm really looking forward to where else this podcast takes me and wherever it's going to be. This has been my home, my place to talk about football, to, you know, to release all of my frustrations about the game and kind of give my insight of what I think is happening in the Premier League and such all the time. I really appreciate it. I will be back again soon. We're going to get to 1.5. That's the next milestone. You guys can definitely come help me do that. Let's get there. And I'll keep making these episodes for you guys as often as I can. For now, this has been your boy, Steven. Welcome to the Dawn Squad. Please come and pick up a jersey. I'm seeing the club is getting a lot more full. You know, we're having a whole academy come in. You know, we have the stadium renovations starting soon. It's it's looking very, very good. So I'm really, really appreciating it. I'll be back again in the near future before you can blink. Hey, everyone. Are you enjoying the content? Please be sure to leave a rating and a review and to check out my other episodes. If you're looking for more Steven Talks Soccer content, you can find me at STS Pod on Instagram, at Steve Talks Footy on Twitter, and at Steven Talks Soccer on TikTok. Become a consistent starter in the STS squad.